Welcome to this week's episode of Pour Another Round, where we're here to discover and share the stories behind the breweries filling up your glass. Today, we've got Adam Hall from Boulevard Brewing Company in Kansas City, Missouri. And as you'll hear Adam say a lot more times than one, if there's one thing Kansas City loves, it's Kansas City itself. (laughs) And after talking with Adam and drinking some of Boulevard Brewing Kansas City beers, I think I also love Kansas City almost as much as I love Wisconsin. That's a big statement right there. I know. Because you're both loyal. Kansas Cityans and Wisconsinites, loyal. Yes, I can't wait to actually visit Kansas City because I've never been there. But it sounds like a really awesome place. Well, I definitely love Kansas City barbecue, so I'm on board for loving Kansas City too, I suppose. And Adam gives his professional recommendation in this episode for which barbecue is best. He even invited anyone into the brewery to find him, and he'll give you personal directions to where the best barbecue is. And that's a very contentious topic to pick one best spot, so good luck with that. And it was fascinating to hear the story of the early days of such a successful Missouri brewery who had to compete with a global behemoth on the other side of their state. And spoiler alert, it's it's (laughs) Anheuser-Busch. You'll also hear some absolutely astronomical stats relating to Boulevard beer and how they compare to the output of Anheuser-Busch. So grab yourself a beer, make sure to give it the proper pour, and enjoy our conversation with Adam Hall from Boulevard Brewing Company in Kansas City, Missouri. Cheers to our sponsors. Did you know you can get your very own Pour Another Round swag? And it's super easy to purchase from our merch collection. Just head to pouranotherround.com and click on the shop. Pour Another Round t-shirts and hats are available in a variety of colors and sizes to make all your drinking pals jealous. We've also got custom Pour Another Round Draft Top 3.0s, assorted handmade beer coasters, and Green Bay Beer, A History of the Craft, written by our very own Cameron Teske. We're so proud. Hey, that's me. I can't say enough about these shirts. So soft and comfortable and really just perfect for drinking beer in. And the patch hats look fantastic. Head over to pouranotherround.com to place your order. Orders over $50 receive free shipping with promo code FREESHIP. I'm Cameron. And I'm Jonathan. We We like beer. beer. We're a podcast by beer lovers, for beer lovers, and with beer creators. Some of our best stories start with beer. Now it's time to make beer the story. Each Hoppy Pour has been on an often unexpected journey to become the brews you love. So, pour another round and drink with us as we explore the stories behind your favorite beers and breweries. And if you like beer, like breweries, like some bad jokes and great puns, and like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so you can learn about all of our upcoming breweries we have on tap. Today we're talking with Adam Hall from Boulevard Brewing Company in Kansas City, Missouri. Adam, we're looking forward to drinking some beers with you and hearing all about Boulevard Brewing. So thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I I also was probably going to drink beer and talk to some beer nerds about beer tonight anyway. So (laughs) it might as well be happy to do it with you guys. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really exciting. (laughs) So, uh, Adam, before we get into the history of Boulevard Brewing, let's talk about yourself and who are you at Boulevard Brewing Company and how did you get into the 
the world of beer. Sure. So um, my title is kind of weird. It's called the um, I'm the brand manager of culture and strategy. I started at Boulevard about eight years ago as a part-time tour guide. I was uh, working in like craft beer bars and was just looking for something to fill my off days. And so I started giving tours and then just loved the brewery atmosphere so much. And I, I thought I knew a lot about beer before I started um, working at the brewery and found out real quick that I did not, that I had just kind of scratched the surface, <laughs> uh, but was exposed to a great big wide world of, of beers and other breweries. Um, eventually became full-time in our tours and rec department, um, doing a lot of like uh, guided VIP tours, beer and food pairings. Um, and then I transitioned into our sales team for a few years. I was the local on-premise rep for Kansas City, which is where our home is. So I was selling to all the bars and restaurants in KC, which was not terribly difficult. Um, but then uh, shortly after that, I became the market manager for all of Northeast Kansas. So I was really um, selling Boulevard to like college towns like Lawrence, Kansas, where KU is, uh, and Manhattan, where um, K-State is, and uh, that area of the state. Until about two years ago, this position came available in our marketing team. And uh, I missed being in the brewery. And uh, so I uh, just transitioned back into the brewery. So now I, uh, I work uh, stones like, you know, like 100 yards away from our, from our brew house. So you still get all the aromas in your office. Oh, it's great. Yeah. 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 Being, being really close to the canyon and bottling line is key, right? And you have, you know, a buddy on the line that's like, hey, we're bottling this today. You can scooch over and then, you know, pull a couple of employee beers and you call them off the line. Market so, research. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have to do quality assurance. Quality control is a big part of it. Yeah. So. so what originally brought you to Boulevard? How'd you end up there and how'd you get? get with, you know, how, how did you pick Kansas city and, and Boulevard? Are you originally from the sure. area? No, I'm from the East coast. So I was born and raised in Virginia actually. And I spent some time in the military. Uh, and I worked after I separated from the Marine Corps, I got a job working for the government in Kansas city okay. and that job was not cool. <laughs> so I did it for a couple of years. And then, um, you, you weren't a CIA assassin or what? Well, not anymore. <laughs> no, no. Oh, oh, I wasn't right. very good at it. I guess I should say, <laughs> yeah, it just, it was a lot of travel. And like travel for work sounds great until you're about six months into it. And you're like, I haven't seen my home in a while. And I'm pretty sure there's a jug of milk in there that's like four months expired. So I have that waiting for me. (laughs) Um, And it was, yeah. So I I fell into the bar scene in Kansas City and Kansas City is kind of weird. I love it. I love, I love Kansas City and Kansas City as a city. The one thing they love above all is Kansas City. And if you've ever, if, if you've ever been to Kansas City, uh, Casey, you will see everybody that lives there has a t-shirt that reps the city. You know, and it's not something you're likely to see in like New York. You wouldn't see like people who live there wearing, you know, I love New York shirts and like, uh, like I'm such a right. tourist. Uh, but in KC, you're kind of seen as an outsider if you're not repping your neighborhood or your favorite, you know, like local brewery. Um, Kansas City really uh, appreciates and adapts its own stuff pretty well. Um, and so Boulevard, having been the longest tenured brewery in the town at that time, they started in 89. Uh, they're pretty well established and were, cr- you know, cranking out great beers. Uh, and I was just kind of attracted to, I don't know, maybe had one too many tank sevens one night was like, you know, screw it. I'm going to, I want to, I want to learn how this stuff is made. And so I just, I, you know, I reached out to their program, said, do you have any, anything, any part-time work at all? I like, I'll hump bags of malt. And, uh, they were like, well, you know, can you talk to people? And I was like, well, I'm a bartender by trade. That's what I do. And they're like, well, come down. We'll, uh, you know, we'll show you around. And then I started giving tours. And it was all she wrote from there. 
Well, fantastic. And uh, I'm not originally from Wisconsin. So what I've noticed, if there's any similarities between Wisconsin and Kansas City, as Jonathan is wearing a Drink Wisconsin Blue shirt, <laughs> yeah. is that people from Wisconsin also love to rep Wisconsin stuff. Right on. Uh, so let's talk about uh, Boulevard Brewing's founder, John McDonald. And yep. uh, as many beer fanatics kind of find their way into a love for beer, he was on a European vacation. So talk about kind of the, the early days of how John decided beers, beers where I'm going to spend my life. You kind of hit the nail on the head there, man. So he was born, John is from Northeast Kansas, a really small town. He went to KU in the late 70s uh, and graduated with a fine arts degree. And, you know, at the time in the late 70s, there's only about 40, 45 breweries that were kind of cranking out beer. We could probably list them all. I mean, your shirt has an homage to one of them right there. Uh, but it was all that like American adjunct light lager, which it's great beer. I mean, I'm for it. Like it all has a time and a place. Um, but John, when he graduated from KU, he moved to KC and became like a carpenter for hire and had like a, a cabinetry studio. But he was also dating uh, a young lady named Anne, who was also a, a fine arts major at KU. And she ended up winning two tickets uh, from Transworld Airlines. They used to operate out of KC in the, in the early 80s. They had a radio contest. Where, like if you're the 99th caller, we'll give you two tickets to fly anywhere we, we go. And she was the 99th caller. So she was offered up uh, like a three-week whirlwind tour of Europe. And she dragged along her new boyfriend, John, at the time. And who's going to turn that down, right? Right. right. <laughs> um, so while, while they're in Europe, so Anne is kind of taken in the culture of, of Paris via the sights and the sounds. And John was good for about half of those, you know, half of that tour. And he got thirsty. So he wandered across the street from this, this museum into this Belgian beer bar called La Goose. It's still there today. And he was met at the bar with a menu and he thought it was food. But when he opened it up, it was, uh, you know, had like 300 styles and varieties of beer. And so this is where he, you know, and he is funny when he tells the story. He's like, you know, I, I basically said challenge accepted. I was going to try as many of those beers as I could in those three weeks. And uh, we're not sure if he finished the menu. He says the details are really blurry uh, halfway through the menu. But when he came back to the, you know, like after the end of his trip, he had a real appreciation for the English style of brewing and the Belgian style of brewing and, you know, the German style of brewing and just, you know, brewing traditions that are thousands of years old. And so when he came back to the States, uh, he started looking for that beer or any other beer that had, you know, uh, a variety of, you know, ingredients or, and he had a hard time. And so his wife got a job at Hallmark and he, she dragged him to a holiday party one year. And it was uh, the host of this, this holiday party, this employee party, uh, met them at the door with two glasses of beer that looked really familiar to, to what John had when he was in Europe. And so he was like, Hey man, where'd you, where'd you buy this? You know, I want to go, you know, tell me where you got this. I want to go purchase it all. And the guy's name is Peyton Kelly. Uh, Peyton was like, well, I didn't, I didn't buy this. I, I made it. I'm a home brewer. And that's when the kind of the light went off. And John was like, well, if, if I can't buy this beer, I'm going to figure out a way to make it. And so he turned um, his little cabinet studio into a homebrew shop. And it was, you know, the, the early eighties. So there wasn't really any Wikipedia. He just started picking up the phone and like calling other, you know, other like-minded people uh, looking for like, you know, trade help or looking for magazines. Like, where do I get gear? Where do I get in the raw materials? And then found that home brewing network and, you know, started cranking out beer every Sunday. And his love for making the beer maybe surpassed, you know, the, the love for like, you know, fuzzy Monday mornings. So he started, um, he started inviting people to come hang out with him while he was making beer. And he said, if you help me, I'll, uh, I'll just give you as much beer as you can carry out of here. Uh, and so he became well-known in KC in the 80s as this weird dude on Southwest Boulevard that was um, just giving out free beer on Sundays. And and eventually, it got to a point where people, you know, like KC is known for great barbecue. 
And they were like, we really want to drink this, this pale ale that you make because it is ideal for, for barbecue. Um, and they're like, we, we want you to make this for real, you know, like take, take this passion and turn it into a career. He had no money at the time. So he wrote up a six page business plan, brewed a batch of beer, and then shopped it around to like 25 different banks and lending institutions in KC. And they all asked him for half a million dollars. And they all kind of like said, this beer is delicious, but they laughed him out because they were like, there's no way you can compete with the largest known brewery in the universe, which is just on the other side of the state of Missouri. So every, every bank said no, uh, but he's undeterred. So he goes to his friends and his family and asks them to kind of put his money where, put their money where his, you know, their mouth was, uh, and basically kind of kickstarts the brewery a little bit. Uh, he sold his house and then built like a living space in the warehouse where his cabinet studio was and just kind of lived in the brewery for, for a little while with his wife until they had a young family. And she was like, we, you cannot have a two-year-old in a brewery. Oh my gosh. So they ended up having to move out, but they sold his house. He got his inheritance. It wasn't much, but it was just, you know, it was an, all of that combined over a few years. It was enough to kind of getting enough money to like buy the lease on the building and start procuring equipment. And he found, and you know, at the time too, there wasn't really, uh, no one was really making or selling really innovative brewing equipment. So he found a defunct brewery in Germany, bought the brew house, had it shipped over. It was a 35 barrel vintage decoction brew house, um, had it shipped over, put it together with his, with his brother, who was a plumber, used dairy tanks as fermenters and had an old Hoff Stevens racking system. And that was kind of what you needed to start a brewery in 89. And on November 17th, he sold his first keg of pale ale to a, uh, so in KC, where we're located is on Southwest Boulevard. That's the street. And that's kind of where the name of the brewery came from. Um, but up the, up the road, about a half a mile is a, a Mexican restaurant that's been there for 50 years. And they were the first place they were like, oh yeah, well, you know, you're, you're right down the road. We'll, we'll tap your beer. Sure. Come on in. So it, when you go visit the place is called Ponex, they've got a, mur- a mural on the right next to the bar that shows John and it's these massive photos of John, like tapping this keg, this first keg of Boulevard Pale Ale. But also what you see in the picture is uh, all the regulars that have been going to this bar for like 20 years. And so they're kind of like set in their ways. So um, John said that when he, um, when he tapped his, tapped his beer, the, the first six guys that ever had our, our pale ale, which is our, our flagship beer, each and every one of them told him not to quit his day job because it was the worst beer they'd ever had. <laughs> and then I was at a beer dinner one time and John's like, the good news is I think those guys are probably all dead. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic though that that they didn't just uh you know record that first tapping like with a camera but like medieval times they painted a mural about this giant oh yeah to become a brewery yeah it was um and you know i think that mural was probably done around the 21st anniversary of boulevard just kind of celebrating that moment um but there were enough people in kc that were looking for like you know he he was making beer for people who were looking for that kind of beer and as it turns out there was enough people in kc that were thirsty for something new. And like I said, Casey loves Casey. So like this beer is made right here, <laughs> but it's gotta be good. You know, um, you know, and 20, 25 years later, you got Paul Rudd drinking tank seven, you know, on TV. Right. So yeah, Casey loves Casey and, um, it just kind of exceeded his expectations. He thought it'd take like 10 years to kind of get him out of the red and into the black. But by year three, they were doing, um, about 8,000 barrels and it, you know, the brewery was just cranking at that time. The, the demand was high and the supply was low. So, uh, we've just been growing like that ever since. There's one thing that you said that I don't. I don't want the irony to escape the fact that uh, John's dreams were fulfilled like a good Hallmark holiday movie at a Hallmark holiday party. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, are you are you ready to have some like have your mind blown? So he has two kids, he, uh, Jake and Piper, and you know the idea was maybe one day to like ha- have like a succession plan in place. But, you know, they're like, well, we, we want to carve our own path. We want to do our own thing. 
and they're very successful and they're right. But uh, Piper went to school. She was a French major at university. And everybody's like, what the fuck are you going to do with a French major, right? <laughs> and so uh, well, this is what she does. So she moved to, um, a couple years ago, she moved to Paris. And she is basically uh, repping. She's a sales rep for Boulevard in, in France. So, so John, because he loves his kids, uh, he goes and visits Piper on occasion. And when he is there with her, he will go to that beer bar, that wow. beer bar, La Goose, belly up to the bar. And what's really cool is that they have Tank 7 on tap all the time. So I, th- I think that's like so wild that this beer bar that set you off on that trajectory now has a product of the labor of your love. That's, that's a full um, movie plot get, right there. Oh, my gosh. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. so. Hopefully not a Hallmark movie. Though. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make it a little more rock and roll than that. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, yeah, so we distribute to 47 states right now. Um, we have a little bit of beer going overseas. Not not a lot, but it really is kind of an honor to to ship our beer to, like, Europe, China, Brazil, uh, Australia, England, because we can't say Europe anymore. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you can find Boulevard in all those places. So there's enough fans there asking for it, and that's really humbling. I think we should pour our first round of your beer here and yeah. talk about something that uh, talk about one of the beers that you're that, that you've sent us and that you're mentioning and stuff too. So is there something specific sure. you want us to pour first? Yeah. So what are we send you? So you guys specifically asked for the cinnamon bun ale, which that beer, it was a one-time limited drop. And when you asked for it, I went to our sales team and I was like, <laughs> can you find some anywhere in the city? Uh, and as it turns out, we had, a, I had a friend who had an extra four pack cause it was gone. Yes. So we had that. And then I sent, I believe I sent you, um, was it a tank a seven of can tank seven. space yep. camper? A oh, bank, bottle of yep. tank seven. Okay. All right. And then a space camper. I'm trying to think. I feel like. And I the proper pour beer. bottle. And you've, you've oh. mentioned, you've mentioned tank <laughs> yeah. seven a couple times already. And that's the one in Paris. So I'm, I'm going to nominate that one right now. Yeah. Let's do the tank seven. Cause sure. While, so while we're, while we're yeah, pouring please. this and before we get into the story of tank seven, you mentioned that Paul Rudd drinks it on TV. Why does Paul Rudd drink Tank 7 on TV and is Paul Rudd from Kansas City? He's from Kansas City and it's a pretty well-known fact in KC that he loves Tank 7. There's a couple shots of him delivering something to like the Tonight Show and he's got like Tank 7 shirt on. He was on um, the uh, the YouTube series uh, Hot Ones about a year and a half ago. The Wings. And they were talking about, the, yeah, the Wings, the Hot Wings. And they were talking about his favorite barbecue place in, in Kansas City. And he said that Joe's KC, which he's correct, and the, specifically the Z-Man, which is a sandwich. And he said there's nothing better than having a Z-Man and washing it down with an ice cold Tank 7. So, yeah, we know he's a fan. And, it, you know, back in the day, we used to see him visit the the gift shop, the old gift shop. He would come in and pick up some swag. And- That's pretty awesome. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I definitely was going to make a point of asking you this question, but I think you just uh, answered it. So I, I want to call it out. Joe's Casey is is your sure. suggestion for anyone who visits Kansas City to go to Joe's for barbecue. It's yeah, so it's a lot like you know, I was like, you're like, what's your favorite type of music? And you're like, oh, I like it all, and then it's like, well, okay, yeah, seriously though, but hip hop is good. And Joe's Casey, I think, is the most consistent. Joe's Casey is the one where Anthony Bourdain said it was the best barbecue in Kansas City, and therefore the best barbecue in the world. And I think that he was onto something. It's a, in a gas station in a kind of a, like just a hip, not even a hip neighborhood, but just a neighborhood. It's unassuming. Um, if you pro tip, if you're visiting KC and you do want to go to Joe's KC, call it in and then get it, like take it back to your hotel room or take it to a park. Uh, if you try to eat there, you're going to be in line for like two hours. But if you get it to go, you just walk right up to the calendar uh, or to the, to the counter and uh, watch a bunch of angry people watch you pick up your barbecue that you 
you know, you called it, called in ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jack stack is great. Um, Jack stack is good. Q39. Uh, let's see. Char is, bar is, is great. Is Q39 also in a gas station? No. So Q39 is on 39th street, which is like what we call a restaurant row in Casey. Okay. Um, it's, it's like a brick and mortar. Yeah, I've been I've I've been in Kansas City before, and I, I remember going to one in a gas station. But Joe's does not sound familiar. But uh, if I remember yeah. correctly, my my personal favorite was Arthur Bryant's, the one that's like you know, oh, sure, way way outside of way the city. Out. Yep, yep, yep. Smells great. Yep. Arthur Bryant's is unmistakable smell. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so we digress. Let's get back into this this Tank Seven beer. <laughs> beer and barbecue, man. You this, know what? This is a great I was going to say we don't digress because Kansas great City pairing. wants to talk about anything Kansas City, <laughs> so we can keep the barbecue going too. <laughs> right. We love it. We we love exactly. anything KC. Yeah. So Tank Seven was um, John hired a new brewmaster um, because he realized that you know he he had his home brewing skills and he had you know he, he had years of of brewing in his in his own home brew station and working on but. What he didn't, what he lacked was brew house management. Um, and he needed someone who had, you know, like, like proper study and gone to school and knew about yeast breaks and propagation and developing uh, new equipment and, and innovating. So he hired uh, Stephen Powell's from Belgium. And Stephen moved to KC in 99. And he brought, he's he born and raised in, in Belgium and brought with him a lot of Belgian and German kind of like brewing know how. And so he, a few years after having been there, he wanted to brew a beer with Brettanomyces, which is a, a like a wild yeast strain. Brett imparts a lot of like, you hear people say like barnyard funk to a beer, um, but he wanted to brew a nice like clean beer, like a Saison, and then use the Brett for like a second there for bottle conditioning. So you'd have like um, this beer that doesn't, you know, it's not very hop forward or not super malt forward, just nice and clean. And then let the Brett do the talking. And so we did this beer called Saison Brett. But then I think it was like year two. Brett is also a little bit finicky. And it's, it was hard. To, like they were, they had brewed a batch of the Saison to inoculate with the, or to dose with the Brett. But the Brett hadn't propped up like they had hoped it would. So they didn't have enough for this batch, for this giant, you know, like 150 barrel fermentation tank that was full of the Saison. Uh, but they didn't want to let that Saison go to waste. So it was also around the same time that we started flirting around pretty heavily with like IPAs and started like experimenting with like dry hopping and stuff. And so we had like 200 pounds of Amarillo hops laying about and they're like, well, let's just see what happens when we dry hop the Saison. And it's not just not something like, you know, Saison de Pont has no like real hop character. And that was kind of the benchmark for good Saison and still is to this day. So we were like, let's take something like Saison de Pont and then give it a, a lot of like grapefruit and like, you know, some floral hop character and then let the yeast kind of drive everything else, all of the banana and the bubble gum and that like kind of peppery finish on the backside. And so they dry hop the Saison and, you know, like it's a pretty high flocculating yeast strain. So it like took three days and it was, you know, starting to condition and the brewers were coming by for hitting the, the sample valve and then taking that sample out to the patio. And then people will walk by and like, what are you drinking there? And they were like, I don't know, whatever's in tank number seven, because it was in the fermentation tank number seven, which was a little bit finicky. And so there was enough enthusiasm with our brewers that were like, we were really on to something here. This beer is great. So they racked some of it and took it to a local beer fest. And people were ra like raving about this beer. Like, let's go get this dry hop saison at the boulevard tent. And there were like lines. They were like, ah, oh, we had no idea. And so after that beer fest, the, you know, the brewers went to the marketing team and the sales team were like, Hey, I think we're onto something here. And the mar marketing team was like, Oh, we got it. 
We got the name. We got the name all chosen out. It's right there in front of us. I don't know how we could miss it. We're going to call this beer the Poet of the Plains. <laughs> and it was like crickets, right? And the, and the, the brewer's like, um, I think we ought to call it Tank 7 know. because that was the, you know, it was the tank that is usually not worth a damn, actually kicked out this mm. amazing beer. <laughs> so we branded it. And, uh, and in marketing, the designers not to be out-designed. They were like, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll give it some mystique. So, you know, the 7 on the label is actually pulled from a Ouija board. Uh-huh. You know, there's like, no. there was some kind of like some mystery and how this beer was made, even though there was skill and how we brew it. We just did kind of like through, you know, uh, trial and error and skill. And sometimes you just dumb and luck. That's sometimes when the best things happen. Get something cool. Yeah. So say, so it's a, you know, it's American Saison. We used to call it a farmhouse sale, um, but we, it didn't quite fit that category because of how hoppy it is. So we kind of created, well, we didn't create it, but we nudged it into that American Saison category. So uh, super light body, really incredibly easy to drink, super effervescent. It is eight and a half percent alcohol. So really easy to drink, pretty accessible, eight and a half percent alcohol. That's the good news. Since the brewers took the victory on naming it Tank 7 and the marketing team lost out, uh, I'm going to give the brewers a little a little uh, jab here. In order to really like crush the, the Tank 7, it also should have been 7.7 uh, ABV. It has evolved over the years. <laughs> It has, it has evolved and we found that 8.5 was kind of the sweet spot after like year two. Okay. What's crazy was, so t- Boulevard at that point had never made an easy drinking beer that was that high ABV. So like when the sales team sold it to our distributor and they started taking it around town and Casey loves Casey. So, <laughs> you know, your average dive bar sports bar is like, hell yeah, I'll take this beer. You know, it will tap it tonight. It's Wednesday. It's 22 ounce, $4 <laughs> pint night. And so, you know, people were like falling out of the chairs and like, what is happening with this beer? It's like, well, you're giving people a schooner of a beer that's almost 10% of you. Yeah. So we realized that we needed to scale that back, developed a glass, a, like a tulip specifically for tank seven. There was a lot of like market education with like bars and restaurants. Like maybe you don't have to serve a, t- you know, a 16 ounce pour. It could be eight ounces or 10 ounces. You know, it's a respect that's still respectable. Uh, so that was a lot of fun to kind of talk to people about what this beer is and, you know, given tours, we, I'd have, like, we have people from all over the world that would come take a tour cause you know, looking to drink our beer or buy a shirt or a candle. Cause we do that now. I would have guys on the tour. They'd be like, look, man, I only drink two beers. I drink Bush light and tank seven. That's it. You know? <laughs> and then you'd have like these, we had this crazy uh, French chef who came and uh, did a demo at the brewery in one of our event spaces. And he was like, tank seven is like, the best beer to pair with any fine dining. He's like, it just works. There's so many elements there that makes it the ideal beer to pair with like really great French cuisine. So we had it come from both sides, right? Like people were just like, I like an easy drinking beer. It's eight and a half percent. And then I like this beer that has all these nuances and you know, the right amount of carbonation and like citrus that just makes it the perfect beer to pair with seafood. You you were saying before how, you know, in, as John was trying to go out and find some funders, they gave him a hard time about like, there's no way you're going to compete with the, you know, the the giant behemoth Anheuser-Busch on the, on the Eastern side of the state. So obviously people have, have grown and, and the craft beer industry is a lot more approachable now, or I guess, depending on, what you define approachable as like weird cinnamon bun ale beers, who knows? But for the most part, people are at least familiar with it. But like in the early days, right. how, you know, you say people, I drink Bushlight, I drink Tank 7. This wasn't around in the early days. And John wanted to bring some of that European beer to a state sure. that was. Hold, uh, hold, 
this beer. What, what do you got there? So this is the beer. So this is our unfiltered wheat beer. John started with a, with a pale ale, like an American pale ale. Uh, and that was kind of the beer he made for the beer nerds. And then he was like, I want to make beers that I had while I was in Europe. So like his second beer was a, uh, uh, like, a like an Irish red. Mm-hmm. And then he also did a Baltic style porter. But then he also did a, a wheat beer. He was like, I, I, I love the wheat beers of Germany. Let's make an American. We're in the heartland. We're in the breadbasket. I have access to all this Missouri red winter wheat. Let's make a wheat beer. So he made this wheat beer and uh, it didn't do that great because like on the, you know, on the bar, it looked like any other beer that came out of the taps that have been there for 30 years. Right. So there just wasn't a lot of excitement. So before he killed it, he was like, you know, I really like these big Hefeweizens, these big unfiltered, you know, like hazy, cloudy, uh, unfiltered beers. So he said, before we kill this wheat, which is delicious, let's stop filtering it. Let's just run it through, you know, like hit the, the, these diatomaceous earth filters for just enough to get the big stuff out, but leave it cloudy. And that's where unfiltered wheat came on the scene. And so the clear wheat kind of like transferred over to this unfiltered wheat. So this hazy beer in a glass. And all of a sudden you have people asking like, what is that beer? Cause it looks different than anything else on the bar. And unfiltered wheat is like, you know, it's, it's a beer flavored beer is what we say that it is uh, a beer. Yeah. The wheat um, it gives a little bit of a little bit of citrus, and so bartenders took to like serving it with a lemon, and we're like, well, you know, if you like it with a squeeze of lemon, great. Just don't put the lemon in there. <laughs> you know, you, you you do you. If you like it and you're buying it and you're drinking it, then what, however you're doing it is the right way. I don't care. And so unfiltered wheat took off, and I would say probably the early two thousands, unfiltered wheat probably made up about eighty percent of what we were doing. Wow, right? Yeah, it was massive. And then today, it's still, it's our number one beer, by and large. It's if you go to a bar in Kansas City and you don't see unfiltered wheat, you're probably on a candid camera. <laughs> There's a social experiment happening or something. There's this, I, I was talking to this guy the other day. He was like such a like Kansas City homer. He went on a trip to Nashville, just walked into a bar and sat down. They're like, what do you have? And he said, oh, I'll have a wheat. And they're like, what wheat? Which wheat? And he's like, oh, Boulevard wheat. And they're like, we don't know what that is, man. And he's like, you just so is a Kansas City, you're just so ingrained. Um, unfiltered wheat is everywhere. So that was the beer that really hooked people that weren't looking for, uh, you know, like a lot of IBUs or like high ABV or something that was maybe unfamiliar at the time. And wheat was everyone's for at least in here at this part of the Midwest, wheat is everyone's kind of transition beer. Like you always hear stories of like, man, I graduated college. I got a job. I don't have to rely on a creepy dude to buy me a 30 pack of keys and light more. <laughs> but if you, but if you want to, you can still do that like on a random Tuesday night. Oh, every night. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the first <laughs> people like transition from, you know, the, your college crushers to, uh, to a craft beer. And then after having wheat for a while, you, pe- people tell stories about getting more adventurous and trying, you know, dipping their toes into other categories. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that that was totally the case for me. But like leaving college, wheat was kind of my first go to with with craft beers. So it, it I totally get that. It, that that yeah. it was exactly my experience. What was your What were your guys' first craft beer? Do you recall? Hmm. I went to college in Green Bay, Wisconsin. So it was probably either a, a Titletown Brewing beer or a Hinterland beer. They were the only two craft breweries in town when I was in college. So, but I know that I, I, th- I think Hinterland had a pretty good wheat at the time that I, I generally would get, or it was Spotted Cow. Oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, that's that when we talk about like beers that people compared Tank 7 to, and oftentimes they'll compare it to Spotted Cow and we're like, holy crap, that's amazing. Thank you. 
yeah, I mean, that's really humbling, you know, when people are like compare it to that powerhouse. Yeah. Uh, it's a great beer. Yeah. I'd say if, if you consider Lining Kugels craft beer, uh, I was definitely Lining Kugels. Uh, but then I went, sure. I went to school in Milwaukee. So Milwaukee Brewing Company is like my all time favorite craft beer. That's, that's like the craft beer that I really beca- fell in love with beer. Going to those, it, it helped though, because it was $15 for a two hour brewery tour, all you could drink. And you go on the brewery tour one time, nice. you don't need to go again. So you just go all you can drink for two <laughs> straight hours as a college kid at $15. Right. I've taken the tour. I'm here for yeah. the tour. Yeah. 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 Uh, and now they yeah. they just said and that they were yeah. for sale because I think too many college kids outdrink the $15. Took advantage of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You are to blame. Uh, but, so talking about the early days, you know, John sells the, his first keg to a Mexican restaurant down the road. How was Kansas City receptive to a craft brewery when you have the Anheuser-Busch's, the, the Budweiser's really dominating the world at the time? Was it because it's yeah. Kansas City, we'll give it a shot? Or was it him having to convince people like, this is a new local beer. I got my inspiration from Europe, who's you know obviously the, the, the beer gods over there. How did that, that early mm-hmm. conversation go? I, I think that was it, man. I think it was uh, like for the off-premise, like liquor stores and grocery stores, it was very much walking in, hat in hand, six-pack, sampling people on it. The bars, I think, were a little bit different. I think that people were ready for something. I mean, we if you like look at the craft beer trend, he caught on right before that first wave, uh, and he was able to take advantage of that, wa- that first wave that took us through the mid to late 90s, and that was the first time we saw a craft beer crash, and it took a while to kind of like climb back out of it. I think in the late 90s, there was something like... 1500 breweries out of, I think when John started, there was maybe 400, you know, breweries in the United States. And then that, that, you know, 1500 number that went downhill in the early 2000s. And it wasn't until about 2008, 2009 that we saw that number really start to scream. And like now there's like what, 9,000, I think. Um, So he was really catching that first wave of, you know, the people going to bars. There was like a a new kind of cocktail culture. The, uh, The wine coolers had kind of come and gone. So people were like looking for something like I, that was too sweet and too crazy. I need, I want something different. And then it was a lot of it was just that Kansas city pride. Like this is something from Kansas city. I'll at least try it one time. And fortunately it, the beer was good and it allowed people like, Oh, okay. I'm not scared of this anymore. I'll, I will continue to buy more. And then uh, pale ale and unfiltered wheat just built that trust mm-hmm. uh, that we could make a good beer. And not to say that we haven't made some duds over the years. I mean, it's tr- that we have, but we, at least we have the confidence of Kansas City that if we did put out a product that there's, it's probably quality, it's probably pretty good. And um, we've educated enough of the city to be able to talk to people. So if we do tap something like like the proper pour, which takes a little bit more, th- there's more of a conversation around that beer than there is for something like unfiltered wheat. And now Kansas City is kind of primed. And now KC's got like 100 craft breweries too. So and some of them, some of those breweries are doing amazing stuff too. A lot of those breweries, their um, their head brewers or their brewery team, where their pedigree came from, uh, from Boulevard. So, and we try and go out and support those guys as much as we can and girls. Yeah, and and you said that Boulevard was was actually the first in Kansas City, right? Yeah, so kind of. It was the first like production brewery. Uh, there were there was like one like a a brew like a tap room like a brew pub that was in the city and they were making beer, but they weren't selling anything out of their bar. And then, then in Lawrence, which is, we basically can, you know, the people in Lawrence are going to get mad at me for saying this, but it's part of the greater Kansas city area. Uh, there's a brewery, brewery there called free state and they're also cranking out amazing stuff. They, they started 
the same year, but their model was we want to make, it was like a brew pub that we want to make beer that people can come to us and drink. And John was like, I want to make beer that I can send out, you know, uh, you know, package and draft and kegs and support the bar, uh, the bars in KC. And so, I mean, KC had a really rich brewing history until prohibition. And then after prohibition, that, you know, was a real kick in the junk for just brewing in general. And only a handful of them were able to open up. And that tradition continued until the like late 60s. And I think that's uh, late 60s, early 70s is when the last kind of stalwart, those big um, Kansas City breweries closed. And then John was the first one to really bring a, a brewery of that kind of scale and production back to KC. So how's your uh, how's your Kansas City history? Did they have any sort of uh, were they, were they illicit in any uh, prohibition crazy stuff happening? Yeah, there was no prohibition in Casey. Yeah, um, it was n- not really. Um, you know, <laughs> the the manufacturing of of you know liquor, wine, and and beer was shut down, and that was where you know got to kind of get hit. But the mayor at the time <laughs> he wanted to keep it going. He was a bit of a gangster himself, so um, he kept the the, the booze flowing. So it never really stopped. It was considered, and that's where, so the name for Tank 7 was kind of the poet of the plains. Casey is oftentimes called the Paris of the plains because it was, you know, like a hotbed of jazz and nightlife and nightclubs. Uh, and even through prohibition, if you wanted a beverage, you could find it and people might turn a blind eye to it. But the production is where we really got killed. So, yeah. so if you wanted some bathtub gin, yeah, you could have that all day long, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Well, Kansas City is known as the Paris of the Plains. No wonder Piper wanted to study French. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. Just a product product of her environment. It's not her fault. Mm-hmm. Nope. No, I think it worked out. <laughs> it worked yeah. out now, yeah. So speaking of those early days of Boulevard, Boulevard Brewing actually started in an old railroad laundry building, right? So how did that work? Is like did that did that work for the time being as as far as starting in an old Santa Fe railroad building or, or what, what kind of struggles or challenges was John seeing? I think the biggest struggle we had was when we decided to grow. Okay. So like at the, he wasn't, you know, the, the, the brewery, the old brewery, which is still up and running and is in that brick building, the, the smokestack, which has become very iconic part of our, you know, like brand identity. That is the, the actual chimney on that building. That was where the incinerator was. So that brick building is still very much in use, but what he wasn't making, you know, what he didn't have a tap room. So he was making beer there, putting it on trucks and sending it out. And that area of town wasn't really, there wasn't really much there that you would want to go hang out and do anyways. And, until the, what we call the West side started developing a little bit. But the first challenge that John had was in mid two thousands when we were unable to keep up with demand for unfiltered wheat and pale ale. So we had to increase the size of our brew house. It was a 35 barrel system. So we were doing, you know, a hundred thousand barrels of beer a year, but 35 barrels at a time. So that brew house ran nonstop 24 hours a day. So we had to grow and like conventional wisdom, everybody told John to pick up out of this because we're in the city, we're surrounded by other warehouses and, you know, there's a church that's been there for 200 years and uh, all these other, you know, like it's like a downtown area. There's nowhere to grow. So they're like, pick up and move outside of this area of KC, which downtown move out to the country and then buy a plot of land for a song and be able to expand and expand and expand. Like uh, kind of like what Bells did, right? So, you know, moving from, you know, Kalamazoo from, um, from there and then their production is out of town. But John was like, you know, Kansas City is what made Boulevard what it is today. So he didn't want to yeah. give up on the idea of keeping everything there. So they bought the buildings that were adjacent to 
the like the Santa Fe, you know, wash house, the, uh, and then tore it down and then started from the ground up, but we still didn't have a lot of space to work in. So rather than growing out, we grew up. So our production brew house, it's a 150 barrel Bavarian brew house, but the building that's in is three stories. And that building houses our bottling line, our keg line, the brew house, hospitality suites, all of our like uh, logistics operations. Our canning line is all in that one building now, but it's, you know, rather than growing out, we grew up. So that, I think that was, as far as the choice of location in that area of town, the biggest hurdle was growing. And then in like 2016, well, probably 2014, people were coming to visit us to take tours. And we would be, we would give tours of the brewery to groups of 50 every 15 minutes, starting at 10 a.m. till 4 p.m. And we would, we'd have to turn people away. I mean, that's how many people were coming. So we realized that something had to give. And like my hotel room right here, the, honestly, I'm saying that this like true. If we, I don't know, maybe I'll get them a sponsor. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, this, my hotel room is, is about the same size as the tap room there. And so, you know, when you're, you have groups of 50 coming through every 15 minutes that are wanting to try beers and sample beers, uh, it was, uh, it was out of control. It's a little so, cramped. Oh, it was, I remember one summer, the doors it was like a hundred billion degrees outside with 10,000% humidity. Um, but the doors were never closed because of people coming and going. So it was just like a sweat lodge in there and it was just the worst, but we had to, uh, and you know, people were complaining like it's so dang hot in here. It's like, well, you guys are coming and going, you know, it's not a bad problem to have. So we, we, um, bought another building that was kind of like adjacent to our brew house that just happened to be there. It was, um, it'd been there since the turn of the century, it was the, um, I'm trying to think of the old oil company, the Skelly Oil Company. That was their headquarters for a while. Uh, but it's just this four-story, nondescript office building. But we bought it, gutted the inside, and turned that into our visitor experience. So, you know, the first floor is where is like the reception where we've got this whole uh, room dedicated to the history of beer and the history of beer and brewing in Kansas City. Our gift shop sits in the middle. And then beyond that is a, a much bigger, uh, much, much bigger tasting room that the tours can land in to have some time to really get to know the beers that they're having. The second floor is a 300 person Bavarian beer hall. We, th- there's no TVs. It's all farmhouse tables. You know, we're trying to encourage people to, you know, to hang out. We lots of like board games and tabletop games and stuff. And then the third floor are like offices for like a marketing department and the tours and rec. So we thought that would be enough that we would open that up and we'd have room for everybody. And like six months later, people were like, dang, this place is full. So we had to gut the top floor of the building and turned it into like an overflow for on the weekends, we call it the rec deck. So it's another, I think it fits like 250 people, but we've got five full-size shuffleboard courts in there because we were trying to think of it. What's, what's something that you can do with your friends and drink beer. So beer in one hand, shuffleboard stick in the other. So that was open maybe four or five months before the pandemic. And we're starting to see that roll again, starting to see things pick back up. Great. Yeah. So the biggest hurdle is taking advantage of, or the limited space that we have sure. to grow. Well, and you just made some staggering stat about how many brewery tours were going off every 15 minutes. And while I was preparing yeah. for this episode, I read something on your website and I want to fact check it because this is like mind blowing to me. You know, you is we're talking about a small rel- when, when John started a relatively small brewing operation, his business plan uh, in order to be successful needed to hit 6,000 barrels. So that was, that was like, you know, late eighties, early nineties, he's hitting 6,000 barrels by 2004. In the same brew house that he's maxing out a few thousand barrels a year, did he did he officially max out at a hundred thousand barrels in that brew house? Yeah. And that's brewing yeah. 
what a dozen 1000 gallon brews every day is that true that is absolutely true so um and this is where so we have some really smart cookies so that 35 (laughs) barrel decoction system so everything happens in that one vessel but as we continue to grow and we realize that brew house like everything starts at the top and works its thing you know works its way down through the louders into the brew kettle on the bottom in order for us to get more efficient we bought other equipment so we started you know I, I think we separated out the mash tun and then we separated out the louder, the louder and the, and the boil are still in the same vessel, but we separated the mash. We had a mill installed above it like this, you know, like uh, in the rafters where we would send the grains up and that's where we'd mill into the mesh. And then the whirlpool was off to the side. And then we had uh, heat exchangers and water. Things. So now what used to be just one vessel now looks like, you know, like there's like all of these like pipes and like things and ladders and stuff. <laughs> But that was how they were able to do it because, you know, before you couldn't start a, a batch until you finished a batch. And for uh, that brew house was like eight to 10 hours to do something like unfiltered wheat. And they really needed to get that down. So when they, you know, kind of like separated out all the parts, they were able to start a batch before the prior batch finished. And it was just nonstop nonstop that, i mean the brewers had like hammocks strung down there they couldn't oh yeah it's wild i mean something had to give like we couldn't continue and that was where we we broke ground on our more modern brew house but yeah that number is wild and very few you tell like the layperson they're like yeah okay hundred thousand barrels what is that and we tried it and they're like that sounds like a lot and it is but we also joke about with um, we comparing ourselves to like anheuser bush we say like every year on new year's eve stroke of midnight like we you know like like it's midnight we kiss blow the horn champagne and then we compete. We start like Anders Bush in St. Louis and Boulevard. We start cranking out beer to see who can make <laughs> like John Henry, right? See who can make the most beer in one year. And by noon on January 1st, uh, Anheuser Bush will have made more beer than we can make if we ran both of our beer, our brew houses 24 hours nonstop all year. Holy shit. So like it really is like staggering, like at least, you know, in Kansas City to say 100,000 barrels. Um, it sounds like a lot, but then when you put it you know, in perspective next to this other monster, you know, brewery that's cranking out unbelievable numbers consistently, that is insane. They're doing it. That's, that's their skills. They make lots and lots of beer consistently batch to batch. So my hmm. hat's off to them. Well, uh, that has all talking about all of the beer that you're cranking out has made me thirsty. So I think we should pour another round and, uh, and talk about another one of the Boulevard beers here and, and move on from Anheuser-Busch. <laughs> so yeah which which one do you which one do you guys want to do next let's let's have some fun here and do either proper pour or the cinnamon bun i here's the thing let's do proper pour i want you guys to save the cinnamon bun so for proper breakfast pour, yeah yeah that's it yeah uh-huh some coffee cake maybe Good idea. Um, sounds great <laughs> it's really great it's really fun um it's a silly the cinnamon bun it was just a silly idea that we had a while back about you know throwing a bunch of adjuncts in there to kind of create this like an actual cinnamon bun. And so when you pour it into a glass, it'll smell like the icing and then taste like an oven full of cinnamon bun. So, but this beer, I think proper pour to, is the beer that I was the most excited about on our calendar this year. A few years back, we did a beer called Cabernet cask and it's where we got some, um, Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to try that one. Barrels from um, Jefferson, the Groth reserve. Uh, so there are whiskey barrels that had previously held a Cabernet and then we aged an Imperial style in it. And it worked out really nice because it was nice and round and boozy and you could get a, like a touch of acidity from the wine, but then that whiskey really jumped out and it was just a beautiful, big, boozy, barrel-aged imperial stout. So about 
I don't know, 18 months ago, we got these port wine barrels that had also previously held whiskey. And we, not very many of them. There was, it was very, very small batch. So we brewed this uh, like a double mash milk style essentially, and then aged it in these port wine barrels. So this is a single barrel, so it's not blend. A lot of our barrel aged beers like bourbon barrel quad, whiskey barrel style, round rye, those all spend time in whiskey barrels, but then we blend them to kind of get some consistency because sometimes you need to blend like young beer with old beer is, you know, sometimes the the old beer can come in really hot. And so the young beer is there to kind of tame it down. Uh, but this is a single barrel. So it was, it was only those barrels that uh, the port wine came in. Mm-hmm. And for me, like a bourbon barrel aged beer often t- sometimes can be like kind of one note. Like there's a lot of like whiskey up front and you might start with like, as it warms up, you'll get like notes of dark chocolate. And then, you know, the whiskey just hits you in the nose. But then as this one warms up, I think what it really does is it, first of all, I think the first sip of proper four is super acidic and that's coming from that, which is not something you traditionally get from a big round barrel aged imperial style like this, that port really kind of held up in that barrel. Whereas the Cabernet softened it up. I think this one punched it up a little bit. So you can really get some of those grape notes. And it's really weird, like you having a tasting and tell people like, here's what you're looking for. Basically Welch's grape soda on, on that very first sip, like that kind of sweet, acidic, carbonated hit. But then you've got all of this dark chocolate and tobacco that just kind of wash over those. So it's really neat. And then as it warms up, a lot of that stuff, you know, the colder it is, the more bound it is. And as it warms up, a lot of those other flavors, so the dark chocolate turns to milk chocolate. And then the whiskey subsides a little bit and you can really get that wood. So oftentimes are kind of hidden in these barrel aged beers. I thought this beer was just lovely. And it was one of those beers that, you know, sometimes when you work with beer, you get so... You don't see the forest for the trees, I guess you know what I mean? Like, you know, like I have a hundred beers in my desk. I'm like, one day I'll get to you. But the proper pour was the one that was like, as soon as I got like my media sample, I was like, I cracked it open right away. I was like, I can't, I can't wait for this beer. I'm just, I'm over the moon for this beer. I've been so excited about. So it was really small batch. We tried to do these beers in drafts so we can send this out to like beer fest and stuff, but there was so little of it that we couldn't even rack even a handful of six barrels Otherwise, we wouldn't hit the the package numbers that we needed. So, um, very small, very limited release. And and this says limited release twenty twenty two. So, do you do this sort of style every every year going going back, or how does that work? Yeah, you know, we try to. It really so our barrel aging program has become a behemoth. It started in the late two thousands with like two rye whiskey barrels, and now I think we have a barrel inventory of somewhere like fifty five to six thousand. Yeah, fifty five hundred six thousand barrels at any given time that have different beers aging in them. And then we've got a whole brewing team that's, that's dedicated to, you know, pulling nails, like sampling the beer as it develops in those barrels. And then, you know, figuring out the best way to kind of blend it, to create something harmonious in the, you know, that for this one, we knew from the get go that we wanted to do this port and whiskey Imperial stout, but sometimes we'll get like a grip of, of barrels and we're like, okay, let's just put something in there let it develop, see how it is. And we can blend it into maybe something sour. We can blend it into another barrel aged beer. But sometimes we get barrels of such high esteem that we know we want to be singular with that beer. So with this being a limited release, is it still available? Unlikely. I, I would wager that that beer is probably not. It kind of came and went. We, it dropped in February. And I uh, I pulled a couple. Like I, I was like, I'm really liking this beer. So I pulled like two, four packs just for myself. And then when we were talking, I was like, what's your favorite beer? And he goes like, ah, you know. I was like, this, I, I want to send this one because I'm so happy about it. Uh, but when we do get barrels, so we hope that 
you know, in the, in the months to come that we'll get another batch of really interesting barrels that have maybe held maybe a different type of wine and whiskey that we could do another beer similar to proper pour, but it would be 2023 or 2024. When, when you're talking about, you know, some whiskey barrel aged beers are just so whiskey forward and just like very monotone flavor. I, I love whiskey and I love beer, but I don't always love bourbon barrel aged beers because it is so whiskey forward. If I want whiskey, I'm just going to pour a bourbon so totally. with with this one, I fully appreciate that port barrel as well, and bringing in some of that that sweetness and acidity that you would find in a port, and that that brings in a nice, well rounded touch with a little bit deeper layers of of some flavor rather than just you know a whiskey punch to the mouth. This is this one is fantastic. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm so happy you you hit the nail right on the head. It's all about layers. So we have three year round whiskey or three year round barrel aged beers. Um, one of them is a like a rye based beer that we age specifically in rye whiskey uh, barrels. And that that's a really fun beer because you would think if it's just a rye beer in rye barrels that you would only get rye whiskey notes, but it's weird how it develops. And you get like a lot of really cool fruit. We do a, a quad, a Belgian quad that we age in bourbon barrels. And then as it sits in those barrels, we add cherry puree to kind of make up the headspace So there's no oxygen in those barrels. So it adds just a touch, just, I mean, it's just a hint of cherry but that quad has so much like stone fruit uh, already in the big like Belgian yeast. Um, all those esters and phenols play really well with the bourbon character. So it's not just a one note and it does that same thing. Like as it warms up, those layers start to present themselves. Our barrel aged beers took off during the pandemic in ways that we could not have predicted. I mean, I think, you know, people were not going out to bars, so they're willing to like, Take a chance. They needed to drink more. You're also in a fucking pandemic, so I'm going to drink a 12.5% ABV beer. (laughs) That's exactly exactly right. And people are like, oh, holy shit, this stuff is great. Um, And so now it's like some of our most sought after beers. So, Yeah, it's it's a really good beer. I love it. And, and I think that's an interesting thing to point out where, you know, as, as the beer, as this beer warms up, it gets better. And your, your brethren uh, at Anheuser-Busch, they want that ice cold (laughs) crisp like if it's not almost frozen it's not drinkable yeah and like when you when you get to the crafty side of things there's a whole bunch of fun things you can do when you fluctuate temperature with with the beers too so i I think that's something people don't always uh remember when they're drinking these kinds of beers that's true yeah and some some of our beers we do offer like if you're interested we offer like this is our our recommended temperature to open the bottle and then watch how it how it develops from like 45 degrees Fahrenheit to like 55 degrees Fahrenheit. They might be two entirely different beers in really pleasant ways. But yeah, to your point, I'm never going to crack a PBR and then come back to it an hour later. And then you know, <laughs> right. like, I do like that we'll beer is incredibly refreshing and, and easy to drink. And, <laughs> but yeah, I want to drink it quickly. Yeah. yeah. So are you guys trying like different aging time periods with with your beers too, or the or is there kind of a a yeah. consistent like time frame that you're you're aging everything. So the the year round beers like you know consistency is always the key. Like especially for a year round beer, you know if we that whiskey barrel stout which is a a, a really big sweet imperial stout that's aged in bourbon barrels, we want the one that you buy today to taste like the one you might buy next year, even though they they come from completely different batches. So the brewers um, they have to kind of like taste. I mean literally their job is to taste each one of these barrels, make notes, and then. So those beers might have a uh, barrel aged beer that's two years old in it and like two years old and six months old. 
And then the next batch, because of how it develops in different ways, may just be a year old, maybe a couple of beers that are year old. So it's the, the brewer's job to find the consistency. But yeah, we, I mean, we have fooders that are, I think we've got six or seven fooders now that have beer in them that we want to blend into something sour. And it's just like, while we're waiting to figure out what that is, it's only going to continue to get better in that wood. So it could be like 10 years old. Awesome. And is, is John still involved in, in the brewing operations? So John is, he's retired. Okay. He, he retired, but he's still like, you know, you'll still see him pop in every now and then. Sure. You know, because it's his, you know, it's his namesake, it's livelihood. I think he spends a lot of time visiting his family. Jake, his son just had a, their first child. So I think there's, there being, you know, proper grandparents and doting on their kids rather than working. But John does come through the brewery, you know, and it's not uncommon, like on those tours to see him walk by. And the dude is the most humbling, humble person ever. He'll have like green duck boots on jeans that he's had for, you know, 40 years, flannel shirt. Uh, but then the dopest sunglasses you've ever seen. That's like <laughs> the one thing he splurges on. Uh, and he's always willing to like, you know, kind of talk about, you know, where he was and where he's come and the brewery in general and just beer, just fuss over beer. He's just a fan of beer. So back on John's European vacation, one of the beers that really captured his attention was, uh, I think it's the famous Duvel. Tell Duvel. us, du- what, how do you say it? Duvel. 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 Okay. Yeah, it's, it's the Flemish you, you word. You put the wrong emphasis well, on the so wrong it's, really, it's awesome because it's the, uh, it's the Flemish word for devil. So oh, okay. Duvel, devil, yeah. Duvel. Duvel, okay. Yeah. So tell us what eventually happened three decades later with that brand. Yeah. So, um, back in 2013, I think is when it was, is John was like, I want to retire. But that was when he started realizing that his kids were going on a separate trajectory. So there was a lot of trying to figure out what he was going to do with Boulevard. He's like, cause he wants to retire and live on a farm and, you know, can't keep coming to work every day. So he shopped around, he interviewed other big breweries that were interested in, in being a part of, of Boulevard. It was a really wild summer of 2013. Um, when you'd have executives from all over, you know, from breweries from all over the world that would be touring the brewery and hanging out with John. But he didn't want to, you know, he, he didn't just want to turn the brewery over to just anybody. So he met, uh, at, I think it was at GABF, he met this guy, Simon Thorpe, who was the president of Duval USA at the time, and asked him, he's like, hey, are you familiar with Duval? And John was like, of course, you know, it's the one of the best, highest rated beers in the world. That brewery is 150 years old. Um, and so he invited John to come to Belgium to meet the, uh, the family that owns Duval to talk about it. Because as it turns out, Duval was also looking to, um, so that's what Duval does is, especially in Europe, they look at these breweries that have been, have, you know, been around for a hundred years or so that might not be doing that great. And then they like bring them into the family, give them a cash infusion to upgrade their equipment and then get them rolling again. Breweries like Leafman's, La Chouf, Vedette, Meretsu, which is, you know, that's a, one of the few Trappist breweries. They were there to able to kind of like lift them back up. Duval started, they were kind of a, an early investor in Omegang in Cooperstown, New York. Uh, so they were looking to kind of expand because Duval, they've been making that same beer for, well, the, the brewery's been there for 150 years, but they've been making what we know of as Duval since World War One, And they're like, we're not messing with this, but we want to make some rad beers that, you know, lactic acid and Britannomyces and hops from <laughs> New Zealand. So they really liked that wild West spirit that American craft breweries had. So, and they got on very well with John. So in January 1st, 2014, we became part of that Duval family and it got us, it allowed us to tap into Duval's pre-existing distribution network. So we went from 
you know, from being in like 15 states to now we have access to wholesaler networks throughout the nation. So we could start sending beers like Tank 7 to the coast. It was it opened up that international trade force a little bit. We were able to upgrade. We went from our, our fermentation capacity doubled almost overnight because we now we had the money to build a new cellar and have these massive 2000 barrel fermentation tanks that are almost always full of Tank 7. We went from having like 100 employees in KC to now we have something like 250 people working for us. Um, and all of that didn't happen overnight, but that's kind of like taken us on that trajectory. And, you know, it is nice. Like Duval is, so Michelle Morgat, who's the great, 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 great grandson of the founder of Duval, you know, he comes to Kansas City and he's just a really cool, approachable guy. And he is a, a vested interest in taking John's legacy. And, you know, if he had it his way, we would send it to the moon specifically space camper but we're like do you know how much it costs just for an ounce of yeast to go in space we can't afford that so it's been um it's been kind of a wild ride and it's you know like we're tapped into all these great firestone walker now is one of our uh, like a sister brewery because they're also part of duval usa so we have you know our brewers get to collaborate and share techniques with <laughs> gang, which is this really esoteric farmhouse you know they do wonderful belgian style beers and then firestone walker who are just amazing at you know ipas and just cranking out some of the best west coast uh, ipas on earth so it's expanded our horizon our reach a little bit and given us um, access to techniques that we probably wouldn't have been able to so you have culture in your title and something that i mean we've we've interviewed 50 some breweries and i think talking about the workplace of a brewery is not something that we talk about I don't know if ever, but but Boulevard specifically calls out the workplace environment on your website, on your commitment to change page. And you, you Boulevard, uh, make it a priority to make it an amazing place for everyone to work. So talk about your dedication to seeing that through and what the culture for the employees at Boulevard, why is that such an important thing for Boulevard? Sure. It's, so it kind of goes back. I, I don't know how f- familiar you are with what happened um, last year. We, we, we had a bit of a hiccup. We had what we call the reckoning. Um, we had some employees that had left the company and did not have good things to say about how they their experiences there. And at first, the the first instinct that our leadership had was to say, "Not that's not us. That's not who we, who we are." And it was kind of really tone deaf. And when they put out that statement in response to this, a, a lot of people kind of tuned in and they were like, "That is, you know, it's that is not the appropriate answer to this." you know, these problems that have been put forth to you. So we had to wait for like two weeks. It was wild. We had a lot of leadership turnover. We hired a third party HR investigation firm to kind of come in and really like interview every single person that worked or like currently and has historically worked at Boulevard to get an, uh, like a better picture of what the actual culture there was. And there was, there was just a lot of missteps in those first couple of weeks with the leadership that was in place at the time, which sent us on a, uh, like, it, I mean, it was kind of a nightmare, frankly, because we start to hear these stories of our friends and family that work there, that they realize that their experiences aren't the same as ours. So we had to really look at the brewing industry through another lens. And after that, like, you know, we put that plan together. We were, we tried to be as transparent as we could. We, every move that we made, especially with that third party with fine line, all of their investigations, we tracked that all along the way and made it as public as we could because we, we wanted to create an environment that was safe and accessible and open for everybody that works at the, at the brewery, but not just that, but also kind of 
uh, instill that in the brewing community across the board that everybody right. deserves a voice, everybody deserves a place, everybody should feel welcome. And if there's something that's making you not feel welcome, uh, it's our responsibility to really like dig in and find out what that is, root it out, correct it, and then be transparent about those corrections. And so we're still, that is something that we're still doing every single day. We have gone through some major leadership change and that is, uh, John came, came back for a while and kind of took the helm while we were trying to sort out, like we had kind of a healing phase for the people who were hurting and then really just kind of opened up and listened to what they had to say and then, um, you know, acted accordingly after that. So. And I think that's an amazing response to to whatever happened because how many times do you hear about, you know, a workplace, people leave and they complain about it. And, and like you said, it's the, nope, deny, deny, deny. But if oh, you're yeah. honest, like, okay, maybe there's always room for growth. There's always room for improvement. So let's take a real look and, and, and grow and, and become better. Obviously that's, that's always the goal. So I think that's, that's very noble to, to go that route. And, and that's it. And you know, what's funny is it, it opened our eyes to a lot of things. Like when you start to look at not just the, you know, the, the workplace and not just the beer, but just how we talk about beer in the market. We, it really gave us an opportunity to look at it through lots of different lenses. And one thing that we found when we were doing this, so, so last year we had a beer called Tiki Slam, which was um, like a, like a fruit, fruited sour, essentially it had like pineapple, orange guava. And then as we were going through all this, we realized we came across these articles of people of Polynesian descent who were kind of like, you know, the appropriation of Tiki culture is not cool. And it was like, oh, until we give ourselves, put ourselves in a position to look at things through someone else's lenses, you right, know, um, right. that gave us a great opportunity to be like, well, it's just a name. The beer is phenomenal, but it's just a name. And so, you know, and we made a change. We just dropped Tiki and, and made it Tropic Slam. Nothing changed except for that name. And a lot of people are like, well, it's just a name. And it's like, well, then I would invite you to communicate with these people who are affected uh, in ways mm -hmm. that might be hard for you to understand. But we took it upon ourselves to like, let's be a little bit more proactive. Let's not double down and keep it going. Let's change it now where we can. Very We're always cool. looking for ways to engage the community. So this past year, we became partners with Kansas City's women's soccer team. Their message is kind of like lifting people up. And we thought, what a better partner to kind of support and uh, and listen to and, you know, kind of like make a beer for them, you know. So it gave it, it, it you know, it was kind of like last last spring was was hard, but it it did open up a lot of doors and it gave us an opportunity to, to look to be more reflective and to think about how we navigate uh, moving forward. Adam, tell us about your Parade of Hearts program. Uh, so the so Parade of Hearts is not ours. So Parade of Hearts is an organization tapping into the artist community of Kansas City. And I can't remember the number of hearts, but it's like maybe a hundred of these. And they're about five feet tall. And every artist starts with the same mold. It's a heart that has KC on it. And then they're able to do their, they do their own interpretation of what Kansas City <laughs> means to them or, or their interpretation. And then we hosted because we sponsor them. We, we donate money to the program. Uh, we host one of those hearts in front of our brewery. That is just an organization that we're just happy to be a part of and included with because it goes back to, I mean, literally it's a heart with KC and that's how we started this, right? It's talking about what does Kansas City love more than anything else? <laughs> KC loves KC. So uh, it was a program that we could not uh, miss out on and at least support but the Parade of Hearts is that they're doing some great stuff. And that's just an organization that we are actively in support of. And does Boulevard have their own heart? We do. We have a, it's, um, this artist did uh, almost like a, their interpretation of like a disco ball on this heart. And so it's on a bezel and it spins like on its, it's kind of free spinning. So when the sun hits it just right, you can see this, like the light on the front of the beer hall. 
that's pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, it seems like Boulevard is is very much proudly part of the of the KC community in in many ways. Absolutely, they made us what we are today, and so it's it's our pleasure to kind of give back to them. Well, the the last question that we uh, we ask everyone who has been on pour another round, and then we'll let you get going here. If you're not drinking your own beer, so no Boulevard Brewing, what do you find yourself drinking to just just pour one back uh, to enjoy enjoy a day outside of work? Yeah, so um, there's a really beer, beer there's, booze or otherwise. There's a oh well, I mean whiskey is that's the love of my life. I think maybe um, the one that got away. I really enjoy <laughs> bourbon a lot, and I remember like probably ten years ago being able to just find you know buy Blantons if you want to. You just walk in and there it is, and you walk out with it. And and now you can't, and that's wild to me. But I, I try to support like the you know the brewery community as much as I can. There's a, a brewery that's like right across the street from my apartment. And uh, uh, they're called Stockyards Brewing Company, and they make a, uh, they really make some phenomenal beer. So um, I try to pop in there where I can. Um, and like I said, Casey's got like 60, 70 other, you know, craft breweries. And we try to, um, you know, I try to get around to all of them and drink what they're making and try to be, you know, where we can't be collaborative, we want to be supportive. But my first craft beer was probably Sierra Nevada's Pale Ale. And that's a beer that every now and then I'll go back to, and it just reminds me of, how my palate has changed and how at one point in time that beer would blister my tongue with hops. And now all I taste is balanced there. So I'm, I'm a big fan of theirs. Um, if you ever have an opportunity to get any beer from Wicked Weed, they're, they're, still, they're in Asheville, North Carolina. I think they're doing some amazing stuff. So Okay, so I was, I was in Kansas City one time and I remember going to a distillery and I don't remember which distillery it is. So I'm, I'm hoping you can help me out here. Okay. We, we talk about uh, Malort a lot. Uh, on pour another round and there was a distillery that makes okay. their own rendition of malort because the distiller was from the chicago area of some sort and i had like homegrown kansas city malort and it was it was so good it was good oh well com- like it's malort yeah it was yeah. it was it yeah. was a kansas city rendition of malort a kansas city rendition of malort um so that my 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 gut says rieger but yeah that, i don't know if they were done a malort I, I'm trying to think of where I was. <sighs> it was Dark Horse or... It was in like the... Tom's I mean, there was like a strip of breweries and then there was a distillery in the middle of it, like a neighborhood of breweries and there was a distillery in the middle of it. Yeah, you're probably in the crossroads. Yeah. It may have been maybe Tomstown because they do some pretty wild stuff. Yeah, this was this was probably like four, four or five years ago. So but anyway, so Kansas City has its own Malort, Jonathan. I, I must have missed that, but I'm going to track it down when I get back to Yeah, PC. please do. Mm. You don't really have to. <laughs> He's not saying that. I've done far too many uh, shots of Malort, uh, thanks to Cameron. Oh, yeah. mm. <laughs> well, Adam, thanks so much for chatting with us today on Pour Another Round. Um, forever, all of our listeners out there, make sure to stop by Boulevard Brewing Company in Kansas City, Missouri. And, or, or you do have a beer finder on your website, right? If, we do. if yeah. people aren't local, then you can boulevard.com check out the beer finder. If you're not in the, the Kansas city area, but if you are stopping in the tap room, be sure to let your beer tender know that you heard Adam on pour another round and don't forget to pour another round for us. The, the, the beer finder might work for Boulevard beer, but it, there's no Kansas city barbecue finder outside of Kansas city. So you have to go to the city to get barbecue. So Go yes. to barbecue yeah. and the brewery. Come to brewery. Ask for me. I'll give you directions. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Adam will send you where to go. 
Cheers, Adam. Hey, thanks, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. I had a great time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pour Another Round. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, at Pour Another Round. We'll be sharing news and information from breweries who are friends of the show. You can also find out what we're drinking and hear about upcoming featured breweries as well. Until next time, be sure to pour yourself another round. <laughs>